Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. Follow us on our website at rvltr.studio. Today we talked to Tiffany Pratt, a self-described fairy godmother of glitter. Thanks, Tiffany, for being on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. You know, of all the things you could pick off of what I do and what I call myself, that's hilarious. <laughs> it just really stuck to me. I, in the course of my brief research about uh, the interview, I came up on that saying. We'll I circle think. back about why that stuck with you. Mm -hmm. So uh, how would you describe yourself? I describe myself as a creative. Um, we like to put all these fancy titles on creativity, but the truth is I'm just a creative person looking for an outlet to put my energy and my ideas and the things that I love to spend my time doing into the world. So mm -hmm. that's that's what I am. But the world likes to look at me as a designer, designer of people, places and things, usually interiors, um, sometimes objects, sometimes garments, uh, creative director, do a lot of creative direction behind the camera stuff. Um, also art director, I've written a book, so I guess you could call me an author. I do TV stuff. You could call me a TV personality. Mm -hmm. um, I paint and draw, you can call me an artist, doesn't matter. So that's a lot of labels. And actually, you answered my next question, which is, can you tell us who you are and what you do? So we're not going to ask that question again. But, <laughs> um, the first question that comes to my mind is, where do you find the time to do all that stuff? I, I think that um, when you get very clear about who you are and what you want to have as your life purpose, you can figure out a way to make the time for the things that you love and the things that you don't love as much do away. Um, the things that common culture like to busy themselves by doing, I don't do. So, um, and by common culture, I talk about television. I talk about a lot of time on the phone. I talk about, you know, going out to bars and drinking and partying and all that stuff. I don't really partake in any of that. My work on this planet is to be a creative and to make a change and to be happy. And that does not usually involve, you know, sitting on a couch watching television or burning time in front of the computer. I love it. So what does a day in the life of Tiffany Pratt look like? It's different every day uh, just because of the diversity of the things that I do every day is so different and it's uh, I think that's why I do so many things because I am I call myself a wild creative mm -hmm. and that to be said I would get very bored if my creative brain could only work within one platform I like when I'm on television I'm still thinking of the back end and how it's shot and what's in it and what I'm wearing and what's in the interior and art directing it I love when I'm writing to um, wordsmith things and get people to think of things in a new way. When I'm uh, painting is to mix materials in a way that I've never tried before. When I'm designing a space, it's to use people or trades or an environment in a way that others may not perceive it. So does that help? It does, yeah. So, so I guess the point is, is that every day it's, it's I talk to a lot of contractors. <laughs> <laughs> I talk to a lot of trades. I'm on the phone all the time. Um, my phone is glued to me. Um, I'm always taking notes. I'm always searching for things. I'm always on the hunt. I, I'm always looking to be inspired. I love to look at things. 
Um, I like to have meaningful conversations and meetings with people that are interested in doing really interesting work and to be dedicated to what it is that we're doing. Um, and I draw through the things that I want to create. I also have a podcast, mm -hmm. so I'll sometimes be recording my podcast. Mm -hmm. So It's called Love Jam, right? The Love Jam, yeah. What is that about? The Love Jam was um, inspired by a lot of the talks that I ended up doing by proxy of being a personality or a public person because of television. You get asked to do public appearances and it wasn't something that I had been previously groomed to do. Mm -hmm. But um, I noticed that as I kept doing talks and showing up to places, the spiritual side of how I look at my work kept infiltrating the conversation or the way the topic would go. Mm -hmm. And how I got to the podcast called The Love Jam is because I realized that we all in whatever field we work in need each other. and everyone needs to do what they love because that's what makes the world a better place. So as a creative, I wanted to create a safe place for people who were creative or were not creative to meet really interesting personalities with different jobs and learn how they poured the same kind of love that I do into the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And that's why I call it the love jam because we jammed about love. That's amazing. So how did you end up where you are today? Like what was your path like? Cause like you said before, you do so many different things. So I'm curious to hear more about how that came to be. I don't know how, were you a little wild creative as a little kid? Were you? To an extent. I don't know if I was as creative as some other people, but definitely to an extent, yeah. I just knew I was a creative person without knowing what creativity was. I, I could tell, um, but even just by my interests as a child, that I was that I needed something different than what my peers needed. And so I remember in fifth grade, you know, they asked the, what do you want to be when you grow up conversation? And I, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade and I was convinced I was going to be a fashion designer. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to be dressing the people's, I will be living in Paris. Mm -hmm. I will have a driver. I'll be looking at fabrics and I watched fashion television and read Vogue before I was even in the double digits. Mm -hmm. So that's what got me sort of as a, you know, cleansing the palate for creativity when I was a youngster. And I moved to Australia when I was 19, did some traveling there. And then when I returned back from Australia, um, I moved to New York City. And I lived there for almost 10 years between New York and Connecticut. And during that time in the early years of living in Connecticut, I would um, actually went to FIT, got accepted for textile and service design, mm -hmm. thinking I would get accepted for fashion design. And they said, after looking through all of my paintings and the work I had presented, that I was more of a textile designer and told me I would hate fashion design because it was far too technical. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a couple elective courses, so some art history in New York, which was amazing, some psychology, but then I just realized I wasn't a school kid. I wasn't going to be a school kid. I was going to be a hustler. I was going to hit the ground running. And so from that moment to today, I think my path has been a, a collective series of saying yes to opportunities that came my way, regardless if they were in directly or indirectly in line with my goals or my creative passions, because I believe that everything I've done from that day forward has created this beautiful collective quilt of colors and opportunities that has helped inform the work I do today. Mm -hmm. So I'm a firm believer that everyone is a creative genius when they're a kid, like little kids, and that creativity tends to get beaten out of us, or most of us, some of us, not so much. What's your take on that? I, I have a, I'm right with you. I, um, funny that we should talk about children, that I, um, before I left Connecticut, started teaching children art. Mm -hmm. And then when I moved to Toronto 10 years ago, I opened up my own art studio. And all I wanted to do when I moved here was hang out on my studio floor and teach children art because of that. Mm -hmm. It was incredible to see. I love being with kids. 
I mean, I, I don't, I didn't have that uh, need my own kids feeling. I had that love to be around the mind of the child that mm-hmm. is honest and truthful about the way they approach materials, about the way they approach their day, about the way they feel about you, their friends, colors, without rules, without expectations, without even common knowledge of how even adhesives work properly. They don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. They just throw stuff together and see what happens. And to be with them, to facilitate those incredible experiences, I think makes me a makes a big part of how and why I am who I am today. I think those children over the course of, I would say collectively, maybe three or four years of working with kids, um, they healed me. They healed the child within me to feel even more creative because they gave me the gift of going backwards to that little creative kid I was to know she's still there. And we all have that creative child inside of each of us. It's to peel off the layers of the things we told ourselves we were not that created that thing we are today, but we're everything. We just mm-hmm. need to remember that we are all everything. We are all creative. We are all capable. So so speaking of children, let's go back in time a little bit. And I know you've touched on that briefly, but can you tell us more about what you were like as a kid? Um, people, you know, contrary to how my life is now, I'm actually fairly introverted. I'm an introvert extrovert. So mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, give it all I've got in the daytime. And then nighttime, I just want to be very relaxed and left alone. Um, mm-hmm. So very much a lot more introverted as a child, not too much of a communicator I would say maybe until fifth or sixth grade and I started to pop out and realize I should have a voice and I had something to say mm-hmm. but um, I was very moved by this uh, quote that I once heard that said is the artist the observer or is the observer the artist and that's very much how I felt my childhood was which was always observing and to great detail and to always I was always very um, aware of everything around me and colors and shapes and details on clothing and spaces and people and feelings and and so I'm a I'm a very multi-sensory person and have been since I was very little very um, touch taste hear feel so but always making something never watching TV always cutting things and it's funny you say that because I can relate to it personally I've always been I think a keen observer of thing, things mm-hmm. and I notice people things that nobody else notices and mm-hmm. I remember them like 20 years later same And um, I've always wondered what that was about. It's interesting to see that I'm not the only one out there. No, and I think that that was what makes you creative because if you're paying attention to the line of something or the vault of this or the shadow in that, subconsciously you're doing work mm-hmm. towards something future mm-hmm. that will teach you how something will be maybe in a building or in a ceiling or in the car or whatever you're designing. It's, you know, the, obs- the observation of life helps you be a better designer, mm-hmm. a creative. So where did you grow up? Um, I was born in Florida, so I'm half American, and um, my father was Canadian, my mom's American, and we hopped back and forth between a small farming com- community outside of Brantford here um, in Florida, and my father passed when I was seven, and after he passed, my American mother kept us here in Canada uh, until I was 18, she left, and it was sort of like, choose your own adventure, mm. and I chose adventure. My sisters stayed in Canada, and you know, went to school and got jobs and I fled the coop as soon as I could. And as I said, I moved to Australia and wanted to see what the world was all about. And when I moved home from Australia prior to um, starting a big career, I actually was a flight attendant uh, out of New York City. So traveled all over the world flying um, and still do. I think traveling is the greatest education. So you worked as a flight attendant? I did. For how long? Um, it was a, almost two years until 9-11 happened. And being in New York City during 9-11 really halted the whole flight mm-hmm. attendant lifestyle. Um, so I stopped flying then. And that's when I started my first job in New York, which was a personal shopper at Saks Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. As an almost 22-year-old, it was pretty much a dream job. Okay. So what did you learn out of 
um, I want to talk about the flight attendant experience first. What do you learn out of this? It's the resourcefulness of being a flight attendant is once you get 30,000 feet in the air, you got what you got. Like mm -hmm. there's no, oh, I'll just drop over. No. So if an emergency happens or someone needs something or whatever, you have to be prepared or think of um, a dynamic use for simple materials. Mm -hmm. So I loved that. And I also loved that um, being a flight attendant, it's a very methodical, regimented, scheduled job. But I love the idea that I could make someone feel better. There's a lot of anxious travelers in the world. Mm -hmm. The little small gestures that you could do, just putting a pillow on every chair instead of just first class chairs. Um, I was a bit of a hustler. Like I wanted to have the first class experience for everybody. So I was always like bartering for more blankets for the whole thing. And mm -hmm. I, I had a really good, I was also messing with the uniform a lot, got in a lot of trouble wearing the uniform the way I wanted to wear the uniform. Um, but I learned people. It was my grand opportunity to understand the masses in such a deep multicultural way and um, and to understand people and their idiosyncrasies and learn how to navigate the world in every place safely. What was the craziest story that you've lived as a flight attendant? Uh, you know, we had to make some emergency landings and one time we had someone have uh, some sort of, they passed out and we had to do another emergency landing and get that person off the plane and um, you know, get the CPR kids out, the ECD, like all that shit that people hear about mm -hmm. or when the airplanes drop barometric pressure immediately or you have to like, you drop X amount of feet instantly when you hit it, all that stuff. But Anything that stands out in particular? No, no? no I mean, it's flying is even safer than driving a car. I say that all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd love to give you some dramatic story, but the truth is you're safer getting on an airplane than you are jumping in your car and driving on the freeway. So, um, and my mother actually ha was a flight attendant in the seventies and she still is today. So oh, my wow. mom's been flying the friendly skies for over 30 plus years. And she's, you know, the amount of airtime she has is insane. And she doesn't really have that many stories. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back to the sex experience as well. Can you tell us a little more about that? So at the time I um, was living in Queens, New York, mm -hmm. just flit, quit, just flit, just quit flying. <laughs> and um, I was um, dating a guy who lived in Connecticut and I was taking the train from Queens, New York to Greenwich, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And Greenwich is a very um, affluent community and she lived there and I did not have any money. I was a flight attendant, I made no cash. I lived in a crash pad with nine other girls in Queens, New York, like it was slim pickings. Mm -hmm. uh, so all my clothes were vintage and secondhand. And um, I was wearing this oversized swing coat, houndstooth. It was like this peachy gold and white houndstooth swing coat, three quarter length sleeve, mm -hmm. huge gold buttons. You're a visual person, you can see it. Mm -hmm. My hair was you know, shorter, Bob, probably where it is now, but blonder and a little, maybe like an apricot color. All this to say, woman stops me on the train, asks me what I do for a living asks me um, if I wanted a career in fashion um, and asked me to come in for an interview because she really enjoyed my style and she needed a um, younger person in the shopping club because a lot of the women that were working there were 50 plus mm -hmm. and they had a lot of younger people with money that needed help shopping the store. Mm -hmm. Enter stage left, you know, me. <laughs> and so I, you know, got my own office at Saks and I was um, learning the store and all the goods and all of it. And it was a crash course in retail and the buying department and trunk shows designers. So I, I got um, not a deep, deep taste, but a taste of the world that I thought I wanted to be a part of when I was a child. Mm -hmm. So I really satiated that dream mm -hmm. to live in New York City, to be able to work with brands and all of that and see actually what I didn't want, which mm -hmm. was to not get wrapped up in what you wore and to not spend money on things that didn't matter. 
but I had to do it first to know I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So that's the interesting thing about life is that I always tell people that you have to know what you don't like to know what you like. Mm -hmm. So unless you give yourself the opportunity to not like something, you're not going to know what you truly love. So try it all because then you're going to be very clear about what it is that you want. So then when you're clear about what it is that you really want, all that other shit just falls away. You don't need to watch TV. You don't need to do all these things that don't matter because mm -hmm. you know what you really want. That's very inspiring. So you've alluded earlier to the fact that your path is somewhat a function of you saying yes to just about everything. Can you tell us some more about that and uh, maybe tell us a couple of interesting stories that resulted from that? Just in Connecticut, dancing between Connecticut and New York alone for almost 10 years, I was you know, personal shopper at Saks. I was painting pictures and selling artwork on the side. I started to work for a hair care company and run a salon that was attached to it and then learned the import export of hair care products that he was working on plus brushes from Italy. Then I was working with a branding department to get all that together, buying departments through Saks to get the products through there. So mm -hmm. I got a crash course in beauty. I did a moonlighted moment in makeup artistry with Laura Mercier and I learned about makeup. And then um, I took a sidestep into a more business place and I was a personal assistant to a billion dollar uh, toy companies, it's a couple that ran it and I was their personal assistant and then um, simultaneously renovating a house and um, trying to get elements of my then partner's house to well our house together and then um, I stopped doing all of that and that's when I was asked because um, local people in the community in Connecticut where I lived between um, Row 8 in Connecticut and Greenwich Connecticut they knew I painted mm -hmm. and so this woman who owned a children's art studio needed help and they said you know just go in and the part that I thought was fascinating was I thought I don't know what to do with kids mm -hmm. like this is a woman at the time I was getting like weekly blow dries and my hair was all fancy and I was getting manicures and wearing designer jeans and and I'm like what the hell am I gonna do with these kids mm -hmm. and I remember walking through she had this like rickety orange vintage door swing door that you walked in to get to the studio mm -hmm. and had these like little chimes on it as soon as I walked through the door and I heard the chimes and I saw the space I literally felt dizzy because I I was almost like I, I had no more air because I knew I was right where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. And instantly in that moment, I was like, I'm supposed to be here and I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to help these kids. So she, um, why she needed me was because she was giving birth. She ended up giving birth prematurely. She couldn't run her studio. She pretty much handed her studio over to me for a year. And I got a crash course in being with children, all ages two through eight. I ran all of her camps, came up with all the ideas, set up all the stations, and that was the greatest time of my life. Mm -hmm. Of all the stuff I ever did, it was to dream up, build schemes for children to learn. So when I left Connecticut after that relationship had ended, when I moved up to Toronto, I thought it was just a moment of my life. My sisters live here. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I'm just gonna move to Toronto, hang out with my sisters for a few years. I'm gonna open up an art studio here, just do what I love, and that's, what sort of projected the career I have now was opening up this really wild art studio on the east side of Toronto mm -hmm. to reconvene with my sisters after 10 years of being apart and knowing that the only thing I truly wanted to do when I got back to Canada after years of being in the United States that I just wanted to be hanging out with kids making shit and that led to everything you're doing today which is amazing so how does it work for you in a culture like Toronto that's pretty conservative culturally speaking um, for someone as creative as you to do everything you're doing is there like a almost a secret desire for creativity that people don't want to admit and they just kind of 
give you carte blanche or how does that work because i'm just listen i i'm with you bro i know toronto is difficult mm-hmm. um you're talking about a, a girl who had you know lived in new york and i moved up here and i thought someone had me in a chokehold for the first six months and i kept thinking what the fuck did i do mm-hmm. um and then i just closed my door of my studio and trapped myself into my world i thought i'm not gonna worry about toronto mm-hmm. just gonna worry about myself and making myself happy and trying to figure out what my new life here looks like and the one thing I will say about Toronto is that you have to give the peoples what the peoples don't know they want. Yeah, that's what Steve Jobs said. And I, I've only ever done what I thought everyone was hungry for, but they didn't even know they were hungry for it. And people saw from the moment I became even moderately public or even remotely known, I have not changed my point of view. I've always been a crazy dresser. I've always had a wild head of hair I've always marched to my own drum I've always hugged everyone I've al- always done everything I've done with great love I've never given five fucks about what people think about me I've never changed my flamboyant ways because mm-hmm. this is who I am and eventually they were like hmm, if you can't beat them join them mm-hmm. so I think that you just have to be consistent and that's the greatest advice I could ever give any creative is that the more consistent you are with who you are and what you love and what you bring into this earth and what you can bring to any job and what you can bring to any culture the better mm-hmm that makes a lot of sense that's certainly inspiring to me so we've already established that creativity is hugely important in your life um can you tell us a little more about your creative practice like how do you have a routine something that you do on a regular basis how does that work for you um i don't necessarily have i think my life is creative practice i think the way i live my life is creative practice um but for anyone that's looking for a creative practice, something that got me really inspired and jump-started me uh, 10 years ago when I moved here, pre-opening my art studio was Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. And if you have not read that book, my friend, you better read it. It's a 12-week workbook. And it really broke me open because it's a beautiful workbook for creatives, but it's also a spiritual deep dive into your soul. So that would be a great creative practice for anyone listening because I did it and I stand by it with my full heart. Mm -hmm. But I would say myself anymore, my personal creative practice is only ever to surround myself with things that bring me joy and people that bring me joy um, and have as much um, peaceful, free, quiet time as I can muster at any one given moment. So that means meditation. I try to meditate twice a day um, and I try very desperately to shut the fuck up because I never shut up. So when I cannot be on the phone and I cannot be talking to someone and I can, I live down by the lake. Mm-hmm. So if I can just be down by the lake with my dog, I'm happy. That's great. So what you just said, um, seems to resonate with a certain cultural movement that seems to be cropping up as of late things like, uh, um, Marie Kondo and the uh, sparking. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. What yes. do you think of that stuff? I think it's, I mean, she's Japanese and Japanese culture has always, in my opinion, been ahead of the curve as far as life and great life practices that have been around forever and she's now just giving it a lovely name Mm -hmm. but the truth is is that her philosophy has always reigned supreme in my life and it reigns supreme very desperately in any interior designer's world because you only ever want your client to be surrounded by beautiful things and things that bring them joy Mm -hmm. and I don't believe you should have anything around you that brings you down every I say this to people all the time but everything around us you know we think it's just a pipe or it's just a wall or it's just a plant or it's just a chair but everything around us creates and carries a a vibrational energy that can either take from you or subtract from you and if you're aware of that in any way at all even that chair that your grandmother could have given you that you look at and you detest every day but it's a family antique and you can't get rid of it who cares Mm -hmm. get rid of the stupid chair Mm -hmm. you don't love it so um 
that's very much um, I love Marie for doing what she's doing but I think um, if we all got honest with ourselves we could all do away with a lot of the things that we have I agree um, did you ever read the book in praise of shadows never to by a Japanese author too and uh, it's about um, how the absence of light can bring a whole different sensory experience to life so mm. Uh, one example that sticks with me, I've, I haven't read the book in a few years, but um, he talks about how Japanese culture uh, serves soup in dark lacquered bowls because it's not about seeing the soup, it's about like smelling experiencing it the and soup. experiencing it. And so a lot of that culture is playing with light and shadow as opposed to like bringing light to every space. And I've always felt it was a fascinating idea. Um, so that just bring, bring, brought that up to me, for me. Um, well, I think that it's putting attention where you want attention to be. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that can be in an object, in a space, in a bowl, in a room, in your life, in a person. You, you, Deepak Chopra, I, a long time ago, would listen to these very old, um, early sort of medical tapes that he would talk about. And when he was really um, talking about Ayurvedic medicine and talking about um, energy and plant life and the chemical makeup of the body. And, he, and I can hear his voice. I'm not going to replicate it because I'm not going to do him any justice. But he said very calmly, quietly, and slowly, you are where your attention takes you. Mm-hmm. And that's what to me what you're saying the absence of light is you know if your attention is less on the bowl and more on the flavor if your attention is more on the window and less on the art like as creatives as designers as art directors as architects our job is to show people where the beauty is Mm -hmm. you know to Mm -hmm. show people where to put their attention to take your eye away from the things that you don't want them to look at and to feature the flaw or feature something that you think is more important like the view or the chair or the art or the color um so but Japanese culture have you ever been to Japan no that was I was there last summer and it was such an incredible experience for me because they care about every single thing that they everything around them is mindful Mm -hmm. every single experience every right down to you know the pylons that they have on the street showing people where to drive their pylons are pink and green like they're not ugly orange the color choices in just overall city architecture is beautiful the give and take of receipts and cash everything is a mindful exchange Mm -hmm. and um that says a lot about why we're maybe you or i are very drawn to japanese culture because from it has come not just religious or spiritual or architectural or design or color it's everything their whole culture is so um engrossed in mindful decision Mm -hmm. mindful beauty i'd say you see that to a lesser extent but you do see it in european cultures as well yes 100 percent. not as much but it's uh, it's kind of a halfway between north american culture which i tend to perceive as just build a bunch of crap in china sell the (laughs) shit out of it and then people toss it 10 not even 10 years later which is something i've always had a bit of an issue with yeah and then the europeans are a bit more mindful about how they live and how they spend their money and the things they buy and it seems like japan is like even one step further so that's very interesting um well speaking of japan and uh you mentioned earlier that you love traveling what's your favorite place to travel to i'm not going to pick a favorite child (laughs) um but i can tell you where i want to go yeah or tell us about great experiences you've had traveling everywhere i've gone i've taken away a piece of uh the culture and brought it home with me in any way shape or form when I travel I just like to I don't really like to have a plan I just like to let the moment strike and to see what I see and walk the streets and learn and be a part of that culture in its truest way mm-hmm. um, 
honestly, I, I mean it. I can't pick a favorite child because every single place, even janky p- places, I've learned something or I found something. Like something so banal as, and I shouldn't say this, but something so boring or maybe not as exotic. Like Edmonton, uh, I was there and I went to this antique market and I got this like total score of fabric. And I, it doesn't matter. It's like, start the car. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. I found some gold. Um, so for me, this life is a treasure hunt. You know, if it's a picture I'm taking of a beautiful place or a meal I've had and I got to try something new or this interesting fabric I got for a really great deal or a car I'd never seen or a, it's all gold, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all gold. It's just, it's just part of the landscape of how a creative then changes the lens on the world to say, well, in Paris, they do this all the time. Like a stupid example would be here in Toronto, you go to Sephora and you buy this $25 soap Mm -hmm. and you think you're buying luxury soap, Mm -hmm. but in Paris... This is like the bullshit soap that they have at the drugstore, the mm-hmm. druggers yeah. that like everybody there uses. And it's just like, oh, what that? Whatever. Yeah. Like that ain't no thing. Mm-hmm. So that's the interesting thing about culture is that we all put our own perceptions on mm-hmm. things versus what they really are. Is it fancy? Hmm. That's your perception. Some people's fancy is not another person's fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really want to go to India and I really want to go to Bali. So those are two big trips for me that I'm dying to, to hit up. Um, because the reason I haven't gone is they're gonna, I need to be there for more than two weeks. It has to be like a month mm-hmm. and I have to go like immerse myself and it's hard to take myself out of my life right now for even a week. So why those places? Um, I think for India, I need to experience the diverse, um, dichotomous culture of the agony and the ecstasy and the color and the loving spiritual culture. I really love Hinduism and, um, I feel like in a past life I was probably an old Indian man. Like inside of me, I may look like a girl, but I think inside of me, I'm like a little old Indian man. Mm-hmm. And then um, Bali, same thing, just the joy and the color and the mindfulness and yeah. And the swimming in the ocean, being with the peoples. So outside of work and traveling, what do you do for fun? That's a great question. Um, sleep. Sleep is good. I, I mean, love sleeping. Sleeping is, my, is really fun for me. And reading, I love reading. And I love my dog. Uh, my dog is teaches me things all the time and she is a constant alarm bell for the here now you know it doesn't matter what I have planned she has to go outside and go to the bathroom or she wants to play ball or she wants to hang out on my lap I have a little wiener dog named Poppy and Mm -hmm. she's um, she's a wonderful she's like a you know God incarnate she's a lovely little soul so um, yeah I think that that pretty I mean I I live down by the lake so I like I like walking down by the lake um, painting when I can get to it, treasure hunting. I love looking through um, travel, not travel, but um, European design, fashion, or interior magazines. I just got my subscription back for Australian Vogue Living. I just got it back. Is that a good one? Oh, it's my fave. Why is that? It's just, I love the Australian uh, ways. I do. I think they're so, they're, they do some incredible things with such humble materials. They're highly inventive people. They use what they have because they're a little island. You know, the importing costs are so extreme in Australia. So they're, they're resourceful. They make their own stuff um, and they think outside the box. And that's very interesting you say that because I've been somehow, I don't still don't know why, but I've been connecting with a lot of uh, people in the architecture industry in Australia and I've made some really great friends that I've never met, but were just internet friends. And I've always been amazed, as far as I can remember, by the quality of design in Australia. For such a small country, they produce such great work and they have such thoughtful people. And I was thinking about Australian culture the other day. Um, I used to play Aussie rules football. uh, And so I had a lot of Australian friends. 
and even the way they nickname each other yeah it's very creative and i've never seen that anywhere else and it's like what is in their water slash people take on the nickname and that becomes them yeah and they'll use the weird nickname as their name and they'll introduce themselves as the weird nickname always yeah um yeah it's i it's funny my old assistant um she's not with me anymore she moved back to melbourne but she was in australia and before she came to toronto she had she found me and she threw it to the universe she wanted to work with me so we did and she was with me for almost two years and we had she was the best we were the best together Mm -hmm. um because we spoke the same language and from a creative perspective Mm -hmm. and i realized that there's such a a wild combination in australia where it's like old and decrepit and fucked up and then like modern and slick and thoughtful and beautiful and then this janky weird antique Mm -hmm. and then this wild color mix and then this crazy pattern and then wildlife and plants and Mm -hmm. they just have a way of putting things together that no one quite can do and i am i just i love it i feel like i'm i didn't think about it at the time when i was there living there but i think that culture really got in my blood so now when I'm doing, when I'm working on design, I, I think I'm, there's a little Aussie mate inside of me that's like comes out and wants to mess it up. That's funny. Every time I see one of those Australian friends, I think, good day, mate. Good day, mate. Yeah. It's funny. Yep. How are you going? <laughs> yep. um, where do you find inspiration? Everywhere. There's no straight answer to that question. I think as you know, if we're going to tie back to the beginning of the podcast, we talked about is the observer the artist is the artist the observer i think if we really open our eyes and we can look around at anything there's information given to us every day Mm -hmm. uh to help us along the way Mm -hmm. to guide our creative path um but personally i i love looking at i love going into junk piles or i like just searching like auctions and um markets and um just weird different not average stuff um i like sometimes i like going to art shows um, sometimes I go to ballet, like it's really, I love cultural engagement, you know, a symphony or anything like that. I, I just want to know, hear it, see it. Mm-hmm. So there's no one thing. It's just kind of what's happening. So do you know what your next big move is? My next big move is, well, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of big moves coming up, but, um, one thing I'm really excited about is I'm building a furniture line right now. And, uh, I didn't realize how excited I would be about it until the opportunity came my way. And now it's all I can think about. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing it with a, um, a family that has a furniture building company here in Toronto. So mm-hmm. I'm able to work with the mill workers and do everything from scratch here on home soil. So cool. that's um, really exciting. And they're giving me carte blanche, which is kind of a maze. So that would say that's a big, bold move. There's always uh, TV stuff percolating. I'm I'm oscillating around doing a second book and um, design projects abound. I'm opening two restaurants right now and um, working on a pop-up space for charity, a big rainbow pop-up space for a charity. Um, the list could go on, but that's like the highlights. So when is that furniture line coming out? I'm going to launch it uh, April 15th. Oh, it's very soon. Soon. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then we'll start. We'll see how that goes. And we'll just keep building as we go. But right now they're building the samples. So, so just to do a little bit of a shameless plug, where can people find out about it? Um, they, they will be finding out about it. Shameless plug. I love that. I use that term shameless plug. Um, my Instagram is, is the best way because I link my Instagram post to my Facebook or my Twitter. And then it also, you can find it on my website. But it, my handle is at the Tiffany Pratt, T-I-F-F-A-N-Y-P-R-A-T-T. Um, and my website is TiffanyPratt.com. So it's all there. Awesome. So you mentioned the, the book you wrote and the one that's coming up. Tell us a little more about those. 
The book that I have already written is called This Can Be Beautiful, and it was published by Random House Canada. And that was a, um, that was before my career super popped. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been oscillating around the book and working on the book three and a half, almost four years before a publisher took it. Um, and the idea of This Can Be Beautiful is that this, this table, this cardigan, this room, this toilet paper roll, mm-hmm. this, 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 this can be beautiful. And that we don't need to reach out for more. We can just look within ourselves and our homes and our drawers and our closets mm-hmm. for everything that we already have and make it more beautiful and have the life we've always wanted without feeling like we have to engage in retail therapy or buy more or consume more because we don't have enough or what we have isn't cool enough. Mm-hmm. And um, I find I run into that quite a bit because if I go into someone's home, you know, I, having been in fashion, you go into their closets and you could go into any one woman's closet and hear them say, I have nothing to wear. And they have like a busting closet of shit. Mm-hmm. But it's because they don't want to wear anything in their closet because they don't connect with it. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way of showing people how to connect with what they have. Um, so the book is divided into eight chapters and each is a different section about life and shows you how to make weird shit with what you've got. That's really cool. And what about the new book? What is it about? The new book is still in my, it's on paper. It's in my um, book agent's office and um it's the soul of design it's the soul of why we have what we have around us and how to design our lives with heart and to put consciousness into our decisions and the things that we build and have and purchase um because it's the spiritual side of design Mm -hmm. people don't want to talk about it but there is a deep spiritual side to design and i think that that's what the, the book will end up kind of getting to the heart of What would be the biggest risk you've ever taken? To stop working and just go to Bali for six months and fuck it. <laughs> so when is that happening? <laughs> Soon? I don't know. I have no idea. At some point. I've just got to, I think I've got to, at some point in my, in the next few years, I'm just going to have to like turn off the light for a while and, um, and do something else. I don't know if you know this, but there's a famous graphic designer in uh, New York, Stefan Sagmeister, who mm-hmm. does that every four or five years, mm-hmm. shuts down for a year, takes a sabbatical, yep. and goes on a creative uh, recharge. Yep. I've always found that fascinating, and I think it takes huge balls, because you have clients, too. Yeah, well, that's what I mean, shut yeah. the lights off. Yeah. Like, I just, that's that's going to be my thing. I've always been very inspired by that. Hope, I hope that someday I have the balls to do that, but it's, right? it takes a lot of courage. Yeah. Right? Um, what would be your biggest failure? Uh, to not live the life I'd always dreamed I could have and to not be as courageous as I've always known I could be to help people live a better life. I think we're all on this planet to help each other. Mm-hmm. And if I don't use any bandwidth I have or power or anything that I have to help the planet, help the people, um, then I've kind of not done what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to just keep trying. And uh, yeah, fail or succeed, right? You yeah. gotta keep doing what you believe in. And going back to that whole glitter thing mm-hmm. from the beginning. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, the glitter came from when I was with the children. Okay. And I, the kids, when I first started teaching, would say, Miss Tiffany, do you put glitter on everything? Because every project was offered with glitter mm-hmm. and no project could be without it. And they were <laughs> sort of razzing me about it. And one time we were um, making shaving cream pies in the back and I was putting glitter on them. And I said, okay, guys, what flavor of pie is this? And they said, it's glitter pie. (laughs) And so I named my studio Glitter Pie. And um, since then, you know, got in touch with a a factory that makes glitter in New Jersey. I have pounds of it at my house. 
And I am a firm believer that things that refract light, like litter, make this world prettier. And I don't care if it's a piece of garbage. If there's like a sprinkling of litter on it, it probably looks magical. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, we're on to the last couple of questions. So the first one is a little bit serious, but you don't have to take it very seriously. Um, and the last one is a bit more lighthearted. But, um, you know, if you picture yourself on your deathbed, hopefully a long time from now, yep. what would be the legacy you'd want to leave behind? Um, that you could be, you could give more than you ever thought you could give. That people would look at um, my life's work or the expression of what my life meant to them and that they knew that because I existed, you know, I, I did so with with all heart and that they could go forward um, with all heart. And it would be very colorful. I would want it to be a celebration and like a Diwali, pa like paint throwing, flowers everywhere, um, people loving each other and just celebrating that we all knew each other and we loved each other. That's the best it can be, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. Last question, stones or beetles? <laughs> beetles! Why is that? Uh, I think I really like their India days when they got all trippy and weird. I really... Okay, so this has been my dream. It hasn't happened yet. I'm about to kind of... I'm waiting for the right time when I will be with a person that will pose for a Christmas card with me, bed-in style, where you're on the bed, like Yoko Ono mm -hmm. and John Lennon mm -hmm. when they're praying for peace and they're not going to... Yeah. Yeah. And that's the Christmas card I've always wanted to send out when the time came would be like, um, you know, pray for peace. Like, you know, remember the bed in, you know, what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It was in the seventies. Right? Yeah. Yeah. When they like did mm -hmm. not get out of bed and they were wearing all white and they're mm -hmm. in the white bed. So I, I think that they, they had something going on the Beatles they, in every way. Let's make it happen. I think we should. Yep. You can be my next Christmas card. Wait for it, people. <laughs> yeah. I guess I could look enough like John Lennon <laughs> <laughs> with the hair. Yeah. Well, it's been an immense pleasure. I think it was thank you. really fun to have you on the show. And uh, thank you very much for playing the game. I am honored and delighted. And thank you for asking me. Hey again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.